welcome to part two of this six-part series on dispelling all those myths about low-code. You can pick up at whatever point you like, but they're best listened to in order. That's what I think, at least. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, why not go back and listen from the beginning? The last one was about candy, if that sweetens the deal. Then come back and join us. We'll be right here waiting for you. And up and down and stretch and hold and stretch. So, I understand this episode is on flexibility. That's it. I feared as much. And here it is. Low code isn't flexible enough for my organization's needs. Yep. I can sympathize with that. Actually, that's the myth part. Who's our mythbuster today? I'm not saying I disliked all the bending and stretching, but please don't say yoga instructor. I'll let Mary introduce herself. Oh, is she there? Mary? Hello, I'm Mary. I'm the VP of IT at Letter. That's a large energy and utilities company. They're primarily focused on hydroelectric energy. Hydroelectric refers to the impulse turbines we have. Very simply, they are what we use to help us turn jets of water into electricity. Lately, I found a few areas in the company that I think, and that's really a tentative thing, can be solved by digital solutions. But it's also a tentative thing that has the potential to bring about some serious change to the organization. Hmm, I'm intrigued. So what's the tentative think? The sensors on our turbines produce tons of data. At the moment, we are not making use of them. But if we could wrangle this data, I think we could very likely improve our operational efficiency. Okay, so operational efficiency. That's what Nuria wanted in the last episode, so low-code it is? Not necessarily. On the surface, low-code seems like the perfect solution for my problem. But we are catering to strict government regulations, which would normally put a big red cross in any out-of-the-box solutions. And that's not to mention let-ups really siloed IT and OT resources. I just don't know if low-code is going to give me the flexibility that a strictly regulated company like ours needs. This kind of change would require buy-in from people in both IT and OT departments at LightUp. We're talking customization and buy-in from IT and OT. This, to me, rules out low-code application platforms. The guys from IT are already skeptical about its ability to customize. When I speak to people like Mary, I always like circling back to the business problems they have and the solutions to those problems. Today's low-code hero is Jason Bloomberg, founder and president of digital transformation analyst firm Intellix. When I spoke with him earlier, he first wanted to tackle the big picture business problem. So the problem, there's a lot of 
data coming from sensors. Well, you, you have to come up with the right approach for dealing with those quantities of information. So you have real-time challenges, you have regulatory challenges, you have the business needs feeding the various analytics applications or specialized industry applications that they're, they're leveraging. And then the question is, well, how best to do that? And the great thing about low-code, it's a versatile set of tools, right? It's not just a hammer looking for a nail. So low-code is a great answer when you don't have a specific application that can meet the needs, which is becoming increasingly the case. There is no answer like that for the kinds of problems that Mary is facing. So yep. coming up with a better way to build custom applications that integrate with existing applications and leverage all of these data feeds that are part of the business context here. The key point about low-code development is that you can do a whole lot of neat things without code but your software engineers can still extend its functionality with hand coding if they want to get in and change things. And in my experience with engineers, they're gonna wanna change things. Of course, and the even greater benefit to all this is that even if there's something you want that is outside the scope of Mendex right now, that's not a brick wall that you can't break through ever. But I guess you're working on that, right? Right. And Mendex works really well with extensions that have been engineered outside the platform. So to Mary's point that low-code application development isn't for custom code projects? Well, uh, on the contrary, uh, low-code is ideal for custom code projects. One of the key differences between low-code and no-code, for example, is the fact that with low-code, there's always the allowance for hand coding. Typically for scenarios like uh, custom integrations or custom user interface widgets. So there's always that allowance for the hand coding capability. But the low code part of the story really takes a lot of the burden off of the professional developer. All of the plumbing work, the underlying uh, coding makes the developer's job more lightweight and, and more focused on the business value. Plumbing work. I see what Jason did there. So it sounds like Jason is pointing out a benefit to using low-code that blows Mary's concerns, you might say, out of the water. Yeah, but I'm not going to acknowledge the pun. <laughs> I'll try harder next time. We then address the problems of regulation. I think one of the considerations, too, in energy and utility space is that she requires a lot of ability to handle government regulations for bigger projects, right? There's a lot of red tape that comes with a heavily regulated industry. Well, it's important to keep in mind that low-code gives developers pretty much the same capabilities as hand-coding, given that if there is something left over that the low-code environment can't handle, you can still add the hand-coding. So it's not like there's a situation where you might say, well, we have this regulatory compliance challenge, low-code won't work. I mean, it will, it will enable you to build any kind of application you're looking to build and supporting whatever developer capabilities they're looking to, to implement. I also asked Jason how enterprise businesses bridge the gap between IT and OT. Do you think that low code can play a part in maybe being a, a part of that bridge? I mean, one of the things that we're seeing happening is that the distinction between IT and OT, information technology and operational technology, is breaking down a bit. Because if you look at what's going on on the OT side, it's becoming increasingly IT-centric, right? The Internet of Things, for example, is dealing with data, dealing with uh, application integration issues and, and other challenges that the IT side has been dealing with for many years. Now, the IT people and resources are being leveraged for what have been 
OT challenges. So low-code fits right into this story, right? Because it's no longer a question of coding custom applications for custom control equipment. It's about building applications that support how humans interact with information across the board. And that becomes much more of a broad-based kind of application as opposed to dividing the world into IT versus OT. It's a great point. The IT and OT, they are working closer together and those lines are blurring. I think you made a good point about the IoT connection as well. I think that's a cool place where low code fits pretty nicely, like a Lego brick, you know, it just snaps right in with it. Because I think when you can fit in there, you can build those custom applications that maybe can accomplish some of those larger goals. Is that something you see as maybe a future for low code? Yeah, absolutely. With the Internet of Things, which is the glue between the two, it's about the data that IoT sensors can deliver and the data that you deliver to the control points. So it's really about saying, well, the IoT brings more data to the organization. Now we have all of these information challenges. We're going to be leveraging AI to provide business value and to solve, solve problems. So in this context where the value is in the data and the business challenges are extracting that value from information, low-code tools fit in right into that because you're able to deal with data sources and deal with data challenges, deal with AI, and provide the customer experience that people need in order to, to make get value out of the data. So that, you know, low code is a perfect way to connect the dots there. So low code brings IT and OT together through the internet of things. But that's not the end of the story. Companies like LightUp need access to all of that information. They need to send it to regulatory boards. They need to be sure that they can have control of it. The idea of a third party having access to all that and then potentially losing that information if the third party goes bust. Ooh, and that's a big red cross for Mary. I know there's an idea of vendor lock-in that scares people away from low-code. Do you think it's a big concern for choosing a low-code platform? I guess it is possibly a concern because many of the low-code players create abstracted applications. Abstracted applications? The kinds of one-size-fits-all apps that aren't specific enough to meet individual use cases. So in that sense, they're locked into the vendor's cloud environment. But in another sense, that provides greater flexibility for those kinds of applications. So yeah, yeah, anybody looking at choosing low-code should make sure that the vendor is well-established and isn't going to go out of business. It didn't come out of nowhere, right? It it's, has a long history, a long-established background in technology, right? Yeah, it's been through several generations that have had different names. Case Tools, the uh, computer-aided software engineering, that was uh, one part of it. You know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we had these these web building tools, right? You, you go in and you could build a website using a tool. And most of those are gone now because the, the challenges have sort of moved on to harder problems. So one thing to keep in mind is that, yes, there's this history here. With a modern low-code tool, you don't have to learn a, a specialized 4GL language, which you did back in the day. So you're making real progress. And I think that's something for Mary to remember, right? Is that, you know, she's worried about custom code projects, but there's a history of people who have been in her same shoes. It's not like, you know, buying an ERP system where you're locked into whatever that particular vendor offers, right? The low-code platform is a platform for building applications on, and it's up to you what applications you build. So you still have quite a bit of flexibility there in terms of the types of applications you build and how they interact with other applications. 
Wow, I learned a lot today. The difference between IT and OT, how inflexible I am, how people who work in energy have the power to switch on electricity at will. And I think Jason really got to the heart of the myth that while low code might sound like a black box environment, you can always extend the native features of the platform with your developer's own code. It's the best of both worlds. The team can collaborate and build valuable enterprise apps at speed, but they can also keep control of the full application lifecycle. And with all that functionality, LightUp's engineers can build, package, and distribute connectors to external services like machine learning and AI, integrations to internal systems of record, native mobile widgets, and reusable UI components so that everything's connected. Thanks for joining us today. Remember, we're busting one myth at a time, so don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. In episode three, we're going to be going full speed ahead with our investigation into low-code. That's a clue. And if you want to learn more about low-code or start building on Mendex, visit Mendex.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 